0: Good to have each and every one of you here tonight. We do have visitors, and we're always thankful to have visitors. And I'd like to ask you to do something, if you would. Next Sunday morning, I'm going to be preaching on the latter half of Acts chapter 2. It will be the first Sunday of September. There will be a lot of people who will perhaps be traveling for what's called Labor Day. But if you know someone who's not a Christian, I'd like to encourage you to invite them to be with us next Sunday. We talk a lot about evangelism and how we might be able to reach those who are outside the body of Christ. One of the greatest things you and I can do is to let them come and see. Let them be a part of our services. Let them hear God's Word speak. And we want to encourage you to do that. Let's have a large crowd. If someone comes and you say, well, let's go eat lunch together after services, I can assure you that if you'll do that, you will not only... Help that person, but you will also help yourself and encourage yourself in trying to do God's will. As you start thinking about churches, you think about the letters that were written to them. And I think about a church that represents one of the most remarkable, faithful, and great congregations mentioned in Scripture. It's the church at Philippi. Two weeks ago, we started our study of the book of Philippians. We looked at the background of the city, we looked at Paul's prayers for his partners, those who had worked with him in carrying the gospel into all the world. Tonight we're going to consider verses 12 through 18, and we're going to look at progress from persecution. Sometimes when you are given lemons, you need to make lemonade, and that's exactly what Paul did. Let's begin with an idea or a question in mind. Have you ever been discouraged by persecution that someone brought on you while you yourself were trying to do what was right? You have a goal in mind. You you maybe perhaps are a new Christian or a Christian who's been restored. Now you have a renewed sense of enthusiasm. Maybe even you've been to a lectureship or you've been to a gospel meeting and you've heard somebody motivate you to encourage you. And you say, okay, now I'm going to do what's right, I'm going to be evangelistic, I'm going to try to reach out. And then while you're doing that, someone makes your life miserable. Maybe you're a kid who's going to school and you've gone out and you've asked some of your friends to go to school or go to church with you. And they respond by ostracizing you and by maybe even making fun of you. Maybe you go to work and you tell some of your friends who you go fishing with or whom you have other social relationships with, I'd like for you to come to church with me. Now that relationship's now awkward. In fact, they don't invite you on the next trip. And now maybe someone even plots to make your life more miserable. Well, you see, the truth is, the persecutor sometimes sees his efforts come back on him. The person who's trying to make things bad for you may himself suffer the consequences because, after all, God is in charge of this universe. Let me give you just a couple of illustrations. Do you remember in the book of Esther how that Queen Esther rose to a position of being the queen? You remember Uncle Mordecai and how he was serving the Lord. In fact, not only serving the Lord, but he was also trying to be a good citizen of that nation. And how Haman had a hatred for him. him Haman had a gallows built so he could have Mordecai executed. We read in Esther chapter 7 verses 9 and 10. Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, look. The gallows 50 cubits high. on will pause here, 75 feet. Which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. The king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath was subdued. You know, here's a man trying to plot to persecute a man of God, only to find himself having to suffer because of it. Or if you go with me to the book of Daniel, to chapter 6, you'll remember that Daniel had been targeted by his fellow um, administration officials. And they had Daniel set up to be thrown into the lion's den. The king was not happy with that, but... Because it was the law of the Medes and Persians, he could not change. And so Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. And the next morning when the king goes, he finds Daniel there safe and sound because God had closed the mouths of the lions. But you read in verse 24, And the king gave the command and they brought those men who had accused Daniel and they cast them into the den of lions them, their children, their wives, and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Oh, you see, sometimes God is able to take a person who is wanting to persecute the church or his people and turn it around for good. You see, the truth is, Paul's enemies wanted him dead. Do you remember the plot that was made to, to how Paul executed? Even he wanted Festus to bring him back to Jerusalem to be tried. And Paul found it necessary to appeal to Caesar. Short of being killed, they said, well, the best thing else we can happen is to have him held in a Roman prison. And Paul was held in custody for two years in jail. What could he do? Well, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, shows us what Paul can do. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the persecutors in the first part of verse 12. We're going to look at the progress that Paul discusses in the latter part of verse 12. And then the preaching, whether in pretense or impurity, in verses 13 through 18, or 15 through 18. Let's begin now by looking at the first part of verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things that happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. You listen to that first part, the things that have happened to me. Part of appreciating this is to go back and look at the history of what brought Paul to being in a Roman prison itself. Why did they need to know about these things? What was it going to tell them? Well, it always helps to know the context. When Paul is in prison, why is he there? Is Paul in prison because he was an evildoer? Because he was violent? Because he was a criminal of some sort? No. He was there because people had brought charges against Paul. They accused him of bringing... A Greek or a Gentile into the temple area and thereby creating some sort of riot. That didn't happen. But yet it didn't matter whether for them that was the truth or not. You have to see, Paul is a man that's being persecuted. Do you remember what Agrippa said? Had he not appealed to Caesar, he could have been turned loose. This man has done nothing worthy of these charges. But you see, from the perspective of the persecutors, his enemies, they had chained the most effective preacher of the gospel among the Gentiles. And what would you expect on most of us part? When you have someone who has been the greatest or the most successful or the most effective in doing something to imprison them, we say, well, we're discouraged about it now. Consider how this must have affected Paul. Paul's plans were to go on to Rome after he went to Jerusalem. In Acts 19 and verse 21 he says when these things were accomplished Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying after I have been there I must also see Rome. I think about here's a man making a plan. It's an itinerary if you will. Okay we want to go to Macedonia we want to go to Achaia. It's we're going to go to Philippi, Thessalonica. Then we're going to go down to Corinth, perhaps Athens. After we do that, we're going to make that long journey to Rome, or Jerusalem. And after we go to Jerusalem and accomplishing that contribution for the needy saints there at Jerusalem, he said, they don't want to go to Rome. The truth is, though, Paul didn't know how he was going to go to Rome. But he learned that while they could chain him, they did not have the ability to chain the gospel. Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy nine, For which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. You can put a chain around Paul's hands, but you can't put a chain around the gospel that Paul preaches. Paul was then able to see the chains as an opportunity. When he writes the Colossians, at the same time as he's writing the Philippians, he says, Meanwhile... Praying also for us that God would open a door for the word. Now you think about that. Paul's in prison, but he said pray that God will open a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. I've got an opportunity. I've got an ability now. And I want to be able to do that. The church might have seen this as a defeat or a setback because of these persecutors. But you and I have to see it for what it really is. Brethren, I want you to know the things that have happened to me. Look back at them. Well, he's going to say, let's look at the positive part of it. Look again at verse 12. He says, the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Furtherance of the gospel. It didn't hurt, it helped. You know, there are things that hinder the gospel. There are things that hold it back. You know, I can think of what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 12. He's talking about himself and his not being paid because he didn't want to do anything that would cause trouble. So he says, nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest... We hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you know who's the most effective person at hindering the truth? Us. All the persecutors, they're not the ones who are effective at it. People can see the persecutors for what they are. It's only when you and I ourselves start saying and doing the wrong things that we hinder the gospel. In Galatians 5 and verse 7, you ran, well, who hindered you from obeying the truth? That was false teachers who had hindered the truth. Romans 1 and verse 18, Paul would write in the American Standard Reading, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and an unrighteousness of men who hinder the truth in unrighteousness. That's when we live that way that we hinder it. But Paul said the persecution actually helped to further the gospel because it was able to get the gospel into new places. I'm not going to go down the path right now, but I will tell you that when you read the book of Acts and you get to Acts chapter 8 and you have the persecution that arose following the stoning of Stephen, you might look at that and say, oh man, the church is... Having a terrible time. But it says they therefore went everywhere preaching the word. Because of the persecution brought on the church in Jerusalem. Not only is the gospel now in Jerusalem. It's going everywhere. Sometimes difficulties. Sometimes persecutions. Can make us better. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 12.10. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities. In reproaches. In needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You and I recognize the privileges that are given there. But Paul gives two positive results from this. First, he talks about the praetorian or the palace guard. The word praetorium or palace refers either to a place or the people. Just like we talk about the White House. When people mention the White House, they're talking about the place where the president lives. But many times when they refer to the White House, they're referring to the president. They're referring to his administration, to his secretaries, to those who are in positions of power. Listen to Mark 16 or Mark 15, 16. I'm going to get verse 13 and then verse 16. He said, So it's become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. When Paul got there and people got to know him and they got to understand who he was, they understood this man's here because he's a Christian. This man's not here because he's an evildoer. There's not an evil bone in his body now. Mark 15, verse 16 said, Then the soldiers led him, that is Christ, away into a hall called praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison. Acts 23, verse 35. He said, I will hear your accusers when uh, when they have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium, or Herod's, Herod's palace. And then Philippians 4, verse 22. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Boy, let that sink in. All those who are of Caesar's household are greeting you. That means there were people who are now in Caesar's household who are Christians. How did that happen? Paul was given the privilege of preaching to people he would likely never meet were it not for his imprisonment. But the second thing, according to verse 14, is the brethren became more confident to speak boldly and without fear. You look at Paul. You look what he did. He taught the truth. How's it turning out? It's turning out very well. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Sometimes when you see somebody stand up, you say, I can do that too. I can be faithful too. Let me tell you, young people, if one of your fellow classmates is trying to do what is right, you know what you need to do? You need to walk over there and stand with him. Stand with her. Let it be known that you are a child of God. Now let's approach this third aspect here because this is something that Paul is going to draw attention to. He has tried to preach the gospel to those who are in need, but verses 15 through 18 tells us there are some who are not doing that. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and strife, and some from goodwill. The former preach Christ, From selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Both groups in this passage are preaching the truth. Paul could not rejoice if there was someone over here preaching error. Someone was preaching something that God had not instructed. So don't misunderstand the context here. Both sides are preaching the truth and with that is good. But Paul draws attention to one group's motive as being by envy that's resentful of the advantage of somebody else envy is when you look at someone else and they have worked real hard and now they've gone out and they bought them a new car and you say i don't i wish they didn't have that when it comes to the success of preaching the gospel you and i should never be envious of another congregation or another preacher of the gospel or another Bible teacher because we're all in the same group. We're all on the same team. We're all trying to work together. Paul said their motivation is also by strife, to be contentious. In preaching the gospel, they're not trying to make people Christians as much as they are being contentious with the message they preach. Do I know some gospel preachers with whom I agree doctrinally, but they act ugly? Oh, I know a bunch of them. I wish I could borrow some of them from Facebook. I mean, they they say things in such a way that they want to turn people away from the truth. Paul said they are motivated by selfish ambition. That's a party spirit. If you want to know what kind of person it is, look at a politician. Look at them running someone else down, hoping that you'll think they're a better skunk than the other one is. Selfish ambition. Paul said, not sincerely. That is, they don't have a pure motive in preaching the gospel. Are there perhaps preachers who preach the gospel for money? Perhaps. Are there preachers who are preaching the gospel for whatever uh, notoriety or whatever thing that they might get from it as far as fame? Possibly. But Paul said, these are not doing it sincerely. And then he uses the word pretense. This is one of those areas where... There's a temptation to go down a pathway and discuss this word. Let me just make one reference to Acts 27 and verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and when they had let down the skiff into the sea, under the pretense of putting out anchors from the prow. I want you to notice what they're doing. They're up here near the front of the ship and what they're trying to do is they're going to let down, act like they're going to let down the anchors. But what they're actually doing, they're letting down the the skiff so they can get in it and they can try to escape. People sometimes will leave one impression when there is actually another ulterior motive. And that's what it means to do something in pretense. When you have an ulterior motive, you're trying to make people think you're doing it for one reason when you're really doing for another. And Paul explains what their motive is. Supposing to add affliction. To my chains. What they're trying to do. Is to make life difficult for Paul. Sometimes I wish my brethren wouldn't help me. I don't know if y'all have ever thought about it. But sometimes. You don't need that kind of help. And that's what Paul is saying. These people are not motivated by the right reason. And he says that's why they're preaching. It's so they can add affliction to my uh, chains. But let me tell you something. Paul's going to be released. Paul is going to go where God wants him to go because God's in charge and they are not. Paul said some preach Christ of envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. Oh, yes, there's some good men preaching the gospel, some faithful men preaching the gospel, and doing the right thing. Paul uses the word goodwill, and it's built on a word which means to think good or wish good on someone else. They do it out of love. This is the word agape. We talked about this in the class this morning where the idea of charity, the way the King James uses the word, it's not so much a feeling as it is an action of what you do. They're motivated by helping someone else, their love for them, their love for Paul, their love for Christ, and the love for those souls that they're preaching to. Paul talks about the truth. They do so sincerely, not insincere, they're genuine, their motivation is right. Paul said, why do they do it? Because they know that I am appointed for the defense, the apology of the gospel. You know, you hear apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. That's what they know I'm out here for. I am trying to stand up for the defense of the gospel. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctifying your hearts, Christ Jesus is Lord, being ready always to give an answer, to give a defense to every man that asks the reason of hope that is within you, yet with meekness and fear. Sometimes we find ourselves in difficult situations, but that doesn't mean that it cannot turn out for good. Oh yes, you might find yourself being the object of scorn and ridicule, If you don't mind, let me use a personal illustration. When I was a senior in high school, a group of us went to see a movie in Columbus, Mississippi. I was a driver, and there were five other of my classmates in the car. We went to a restaurant, and everybody but myself ordered a beer. And I made it clear that I would not drink it. I never have drank a drop of alcohol don't ever intend to. And you can imagine the way that everybody acted when they found out I wouldn't do that. They really laughed with a hee-haw laugh at me. We drove back home. I dropped them all off. Thought about, hey, this is probably in my friendship with these people. About a month later, one of those girls came to me and said, I want you to know, I laughed at you, but I really respect you. And I've got some spiritual problems now. Will you help me? You know, a lot of times that may be where you're at. You may be at this point the object of scorn and ridicule, but it can turn out for good. Sometimes we find others who are made, motivated by less than honorable motives, but that doesn't mean that good can't be accomplished. Here's someone over here who's preaching the gospel. You're not sure where he's doing for the right reason or not, but if he's preaching the truth... Rejoice that God's message is being given out. Let's make sure that we, as far as ourselves is concerned, we're doing the right thing for the right reason because we're motivated by trying to spread God's message. As I read the book of Philippians, I see Paul's thankfulness for their fellowship and furtherance of the gospel. I see him asking for them to pray for him. I see them as a people who are also suffering as Paul is suffering, suffering with him. And he's trying to motivate them. They know I am set for the defense of the gospel. I hope you are as well. And I hope as you and I study through the Bible that we take confidence, we take courage We find some boldness to say, will you go to church with me next Sunday? We're going to study Acts chapter 2. And we're going to study what happens when people say, men and brethren, what shall we do? Tonight, if you need to become a Christian, we're going to sing the song, Are You Coming to Jesus Tonight? If you believe that he's the Christ, why not repent of your sins, confess your faith in him, and be baptized? If you are a Christian and there's sin in your life that's not been dealt with, if it's private, it's personal, pray to God. Don't let it remain to your charge. If it's public and you want your brethren to know of your repentance, come forward, let's pray together. Would you respond as together we stand and sing?